It's Monday, June 9th, 2014, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Funny moment in the debate for the seat currently occupied by Charles Rangel. Charles Rangel would like to keep it occupied by Charles Rangel. This aired uh, yesterday afternoon on WABC. It was one of these TV debates. And so Rangel has both his opponents sitting next to him, and he really doesn't like some of the stuff that uh, Adriano Espelot is saying. And in the middle of it, he pulls this move. Now, during the whole debate, so it's one of these debates where there's a table in front of the candidates and the moderator, Diana Williams, is off to the side, a little bit removed. And, you know, you don't really look at what's on the table. But if you go back and look at the tape, they're sitting there. It looks like a book, like a cream-colored book. But it's not a book because during the debate, Wrangle picks it up. And then for a moment, you hear Diana Williams asking this. On the hook. Congressman, I just are we paying say attention that. here or what the, are we doing? What are you doing? Are you paying attention? Because it was an iPad. And the debate goes on, and there's Wrangle. He's still on his iPad Googling, talking about Dodd-Frank or whatever. He doesn't take a pause by the fact that the that the moderator called him out on using this iPad. And then later, she has to get really explicit and point out, you can't be using the iPad. The Congressman, are you Googling during this debate? No, no I just want to show that what he was picking out was consistent. But it's not fair because they don't have their... Oh, I was going to show it to him, but you're right. And he was, I guess, gracious about it. He could have said, no, actually, I'm playing Flappy Birds. But that actually sounded more like a robot version of Wrangle. But as you've learned, if you listen to the show, I'm no impressionist. Anyway, Wrangle, I mean, how old Wrangle? He's actually, I just looked it up. He turns 84 in two days. So I guess credit to him for using the internet. But that, that's a little, no, I'm not, I'm going to take away the credit. You can't Google during a debate. Today on the show, we'll be talking with Colson Whitehead. He played in the World Series of Poker, has a lot of thoughts on that, and beef jerky. And in the spiel, I get a little upset at New York City street fairs. They deserve it. In fact, they deserve a little more ire. But it's not just that. We also talk about the Rangers. But now, David Rode, former prisoner of the Taliban, on the Bo Bergdahl transfer. David Rode is a reporter for Reuters when he was working for the New York Times. Actually, he was on leave at the time in 2008 when he was kidnapped in Afghanistan and held captive for over seven months. He escaped. The faction that took Rode was the same faction that kidnapped Bo Bergdahl. And Rode has written about this in a piece titled Bo Bergdahl and the Impossible Choices Families of Hostages Face. Hello, David Rode. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. When we say factions, who were they? How big are they? Is there a chance that the actual people who are watching you and keeping you captive were the actual people watching Bergdahl? I don't know in terms of the specific guards, but in in terms of who provided housing for him and paid him, it's it's definitely the same group. It's called the Haqqani Network. You know, what's unique about them is that they are the Taliban faction that works the closest with Pakistan's military intelligence service, the ISI. Right. And so what do you then make of that when you add all that together and you think about the Bergdahl case? What surprised me is that there's been so little focus on Pakistan. The administration made this deal because for five years the Taliban were able to hold Bo Bergdahl inside Pakistan, and administration officials have said that the Pakistani army, despite $18 billion in U.S. aid since 2001, made no effort to find Bergdahl, and they put no pressure on their proxies, the Haqqani Network, to free him. It seems almost impossible that you'd have to point this out, but if you look at where discourse has gone on the Bergdahl case, what's been your reaction to this thought that, you know, Bo Bergdahl isn't 
fundamentally a victim, uh, a victim of something horrible. I think he needs to answer why he apparently walked off of his base. His fellow soldiers have a right to hear his explanation. But I also think, you know, he needs to process. You know, we need to hear his side of the story. There's all kinds of bad information that's out there. There's rumors and reports that he was somehow seeking out the Taliban. I've never heard any credible evidence of that. You know, we just we need more time, more time to hear from him about, you know, how this happened. And I can guarantee you one thing. I went to a Taliban interview. You know, I'll, I'll regret going to that interview and being kidnapped and putting my family through hell for seven months. I guarantee you he's going to regret this. He's regretted it for the last five years, and he'll regret it for the rest of his life. Do you think that you really can't blame yourself for t- trying to pursue the interview? And obviously what happened was terrible as a result, but was it in retrospect actually a poor risk uh, knowing what you know now? Earlier in my career, I took a big risk to go in, in Bosnia and find some mass graves around a town called Srebrenica, and, and those stories helped expose the mass executions of several thousand Bosnian Muslim men, I'd take that risk again. That's the kind of thing journalists should take risks for. In, in hindsight, honestly, I went to interview with my commander. It was going to be part of a book I was writing. You know, I wanted it to be the definitive book about what went wrong in Afghanistan. And I think that was a mistake. For the possible reward, you know, an interview with a Taliban commander, it wasn't worth the risk. You right. know? But again, if you're going to expose a major atrocity, like I did in Bosnia, you know, I think that that was the risk. So it's really important to think through what the biggest possible story you're going to get when you take an enormous risk. And the Taliban commander had given interviews before, but his involvement in this case was a ruse, right? It wasn't like that particular commander had anything to do with your kidnapping, or did he? It was the same guy. He had met uh, twice uh, with a French journalist and once with a Greek journalist. In hindsight, he was sort of getting a reputation among Western journalists that he could be trusted. Yeah. And then when I arrived as sort of a, the, the French journalist was female, and it was sort of shameful in, in many ways and for them to kidnap women. I was a male American, so I was an ideal potential captive. I went to see him at the wrong time. You were on Face the Nation on Sunday, and Peggy Noonan was saying that it was very, very strange that Bo Bergdahl has been kept in, I think her words were, near isolation since he's been uh, back and in Landstuhl. You didn't have a chance to comment on it then, but do you think that is strange? I don't think it's strange that he's been held in isolation, that they're they're taking this so slowly. Terry Anderson, who was held in, in Lebanon for nearly seven years, he had cellmates. American POWs in Vietnam did have other American soldiers nearby. I don't know of any other captivity where an American has been held alone with essentially no contact except for with his guards for five years. So we've got to wait for the facts here, and it, it's not unusual at all that uh, this is moving so slowly. I think it's for Bo Bergdahl's health, not for any other reason. Do you have any criticisms of the, what Bo Bergdahl and the Bergdahl family has done throughout all of this. You know, I have a biased perspective, but I think the family was just desperately trying to keep Bo alive. I know you changed your beat, and you were a columnist for Reuters for a while, and you started covering issues of wealth and income inequality. And now a subject like this comes up again, and you have to relive it to some extent. Journalists change their beat all the time, but did you change it for reasons other than, oh, I just wanted to do something new? Was there still some emotional pain involved in, you know, covering this that was so close to, I'm sure, the most traumatic period of your life? You know, I felt like, you know, we as a country need more fact and less opinion. and I'm a better reporter than columnist, so that's why I made the move. It wasn't, you know, due to the subject matter. And I'm, you know, I'm still 
uh, writing about terrorism and, and these topics uh, now. And talking about it now, you're happy to uh, contribute to the discourse? Yeah, I just, you know, I, again, there's broader issues. Why didn't Pakistan do more? Um, you know, how do you really deal with this threat beyond, you know, just stating, you know, we're never going to pay ransoms? Because I, I just, these guys are delusional. They're going to continue um, abducting people. And it's, it is a successful tactic, and it's spreading. Look at the Nigerian schoolgirls. This is how you get ransom and publicity and prisoners, and there needs to be, you know, a recognition of how big this problem is and a coordinated response to it by multiple countries. David Rode is a reporter for Reuters. He's won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes in his career, and he's written about his experiences as a hostage. Thank you, David. Thank you. Colson Whitehead has written about zombies, enthusiasts of the John Henry legend, and his own experience secretly liking Light FM while a teenager. Some of those stories are real, some are not. I won't give you away which or which. But if you want to talk about the conflation of the imagined and the actual, then you're talking about Las Vegas. That's where Colson went, as one does, to play in the World Series of Poker a few years back. The resulting book is The Noble Hustle, Poker, Beef Jerky, and Death, All Great Topics to Chew Over. Colson Whitehead joins me now. Hello, Colson. Hey, how do you do? So you played in the World Series of Poker in 2011, right? Grantland was just starting up, you know, the ESPN-funded sports and pop culture website. And they were trying to find non-traditional folks to write about sports. I'm not a big sports guy. But the editor had heard I liked poker, and so they proposed sending me to cover the World Series of Poker, but, you know, it's 10 days in Vegas, sort of draining. And then they said, well, what if instead of paying you, we covered your entrance fee of $10,000, and you played in the World Series? And then, of course, I was in. You played poker, right? You, yeah, it was a home player, you know, $5 buying games with friends. Yeah. And was the type of poker you played what they usually play in homes, which is everyone gets called different games and there's a lot of wild cards? Or were you good about playing Texas Hold'em kind of established games that they play in the World Series? No, no we, we played Hold'em, no wild card games. But, you know, it was once a month for like 12 years, and it was really just so we can catch up. And so it was a lot of talk about kids and allergies you know everyone has some kind of new allergy every month yeah uh, they're talking about and so plays very slow it's yeah. very casual a lot of people staying into the river the final card you know who knows what's going to happen <laughs> right so you're prepping for world series of poker give me your regimen i start going to atlantic city i would drop off my kid at school and hop on a bus to atlantic city and just play whatever tournaments for as long as i could Whenever I dropped out, I'd go across town to another one, and so I had a schedule of, of tournaments. And then I'd hop on a bus at midnight and come back uh, and get home at 3. I got a poker coach, a friend of mine in my home game, knew of a woman named Helen Ellis, and she became like my sort of Burgess Meredith, you know, in my corner, telling me how to play, where to eat, what to do, and generally keep my head together. Were you going in figuring you'd be a tight player? I was going to play conservative and hopefully get enough stuff for the article. And then I talked to Matt Matros, who is a really sort of top-level player. He's won a couple of bracelets, diamond-studded bracelets. I'm not yeah. sure how they hit upon that, but it's better than an engraved cup, I guess. And he said, well, do you want to just sort of play it safe, or do you really want to sort of step out of yourself and have an experience? And he was like, you know, there may come a time where your brain says this guy has a great hand, but your gut says something different. And go with your gut, to sort of live in the experience. He didn't say shed your crummy life but but you know like stop thinking like a, a small timer and really play in the game and later on there are a few moments when i sort of stepped up and was playing at a level i've never played before 
And it was exhilarating and, and sort of stayed with me. And that's why it became a book in the end. Was your gut more right than your head? Uh, strangely, strangely, you know, towards the end there, I was sort of trusting it more. And um, I was getting into a kind of you know, zen sort of yeah. place with the game. It was, it was really lovely. Did that contradict what your poker coach had told you? I would imagine she'd say play with your head she would say intuition but you're getting reads on people and reads are not really controlled by the brain they're a a sum of like their posture and betting patterns and just what they're sort of giving off and so and that's sort of intuitive and and from your gut as well can you analyze why you think that was were you in you know why was your gut doing you such favors during well i mean i mean uh you know i crammed all this poker lore and the blinds what it costs to play every round escalate and as i was going sort of broke I was becoming sort of like more of like a descending to a sort of animal state of just I need to survive. I have to stay in, and yeah. you know I'm not playing premium hands. I'm playing any face card. It's just sort of reverting to this sort of. I mean, it's not primal. I'm just some middle aged dude playing poker. <laughs> but, but, uh, but a middle aged dude <laughs> playing poker can't experience that which is primal. Of well, course you can. Well, feeling desperate and wanting yeah. to survive, but not yeah. going out sort of blinded out of existence in a sort of slow death made me sort of step up and be in the game in a way I hadn't been before. How long did you last? Well, you have to read the book, <laughs> uh, if I wanted to say it. Well, I mean, it, I, I'll just say this. The subtitle would have, by the winner of the World Series of Poker, if that were indeed the case. Yes, it probably wouldn't have death, marketing in, material. death in the, in the yeah. subtitle. Yeah. So, um, yes, if I'd won a couple million dollars, I would still be hiking Everest or you yeah. know, on my yacht in the, in the Caribbean. All right, so let's get to the jerky. I think my favorite part. Jerky is laced. There are references to jerky throughout the book, and then you get into the jerky big time and you go into the jerky store down there on Fremont Street. I didn't know that jerky was such a huge thing. But, oh, yeah. But Dexter Choi had opened his dream establishment, the House of Jerky, Alaskan salmon jerky, beef jerky, uh, some dried nuts. And it seemed like it was a testament to the American dream, but also the vitality of Vegas. If you can just open up such a strange, ridiculous shop and make it your own and, and, and survive, then you can do anything. And that's sort of the gambler's hope. If I can just soldier through, the fortunes will smile upon me. Did you feel during your many days of playing poker like a piece of jerky at any point? Processed well, and dried out? Yes, I mean, you're waiting to be you're a strip of, of humble meat bride and cured. And you want to become that beautiful thing, a piece of jerky, eventually waiting for that moment of transformation where you're a humble dude and then become a, a real poker player. So in the way, of course, that humble muscle meat is transformed by the jerky process. Yeah. So might I, as a home player, be transformed into a, a poker maestro for a couple of minutes. I'll buy it. I'm just, yeah, just vamping here. <laughs> All right. So anhedonia. Which is a word I love. It means the inability to find pleasure. Annie Hall was originally called Annie. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that was what a lot of the Grantland articles were called, right? Dispatches from... Yeah, occasional dispatches from the Republic of Anhedonia. Well, I mean, I always, always liked the word. It seemed to speak to me in terms of my disposition. And then, you know, it's the World Series of Poker. So what nation would I represent? <laughs> America or my true homeland of the Republic of Anhedonia? Not just me. It's all sort of misfits, weirdos, and, and shut-ins. And so I would represent for all those people. To me, it's almost like an international house of pancakes, tossed off title. The people don't maybe take it too seriously, but I'm glad you did. I'm glad. Yes, yeah, so 150 the nations, you know, they're all, you know, trying to get a piece of the pie. Yeah. Piece, slice of the jerky. Carlson Whitehead is the author recently of The Noble Hustle, Poker, Beef Jerky and Death. Thank you, Carlson. Yes. No, my pleasure.
So the other day I was reading the newspaper, yes, I I read the newspaper, about the Mississippi Senate race where Haley Barber, the GOP bigwig, former governor of Mississippi, said, I don't care if you're from the coast or Yazoo City, if you're white or if you're black, you got to come out and vote for Thad Cochran. And I said to myself, Yazoo City, is that an actual city or is that just like what the people of Mississippi call podunk? I mean, I come from Long Island where there's a place called Hicksville. That's where Billy Joel is from. It's not exactly a nexus of Hicks. I mean, it's no more full of Hicks than Massapequa, Massapequa Park, Amityville, Copaig. So it can be a real place or it can be a fake place. So rather than doing something logical like Googling it and finding out that Yazoo City is actually where Haley Barber's from and has this huge history of um, racism, white's only water fountain, and the KKK was there, I was at the Big Apple Barbecue And there was a purveyor of smoked meats from Yazoo City. And so I got into a long conversation. I found out all about the history of Yazoo City. This is a day after wondering about Yazoo City. And the reason I got in this conversation instead of just Googling it was the lines at the Big Apple Barbecue. Well, they call it the Big Apple Barbecue. It's actually the Big Apple Stand, Wait, and Don't Eat Any Barbecue and try to keep a five- and a seven-year-old occupied with whatever books you bring along with you in lieu of barbecue. That would be good. The Big Apple in lieu of barbecue. I would say this about the Big Apple barbecue. At least their intentions are good. I mean, the reason that it's so crowded and that everyone's standing and waiting is that everyone loves barbecue. Now, if you told someone, hey, you want to go to this barbecue restaurant, but it'll take an hour and 20 minutes to get served, and there are no seats, and you got to stand online, and you got two kids who are all out of their Ninjago books, would that be a deal you would take? No, you would not take that deal. Also, Big Apple Barbecue, while I'm complaining about this, they have a beer section and a barbecue section, and never the twain shall meet. So you can have a beer, and you can have your barbecue see it's outside in a park and there are state laws and blah, 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 blah. Sometimes, call me crazy, I like to go sip a beer, taste a barbecue, sip a beer, instead of eat all the barbecue, then drink all the beer. But you know what? It's a lot better than the other thing that was going on, which is the New York City Street Fair. The New York City Street Fair is just about the worst institution in New York City. I take Al Sharpton into account when I say that. The New York City Street Fair is not a fair that honors anything or anyone. Yeah, on paper, they're like, oh, yeah, it's Our Lady, our second cousin of Guadalupe Day. But it's this traveling band of dental equipment and socks and three champion T-shirts for $5. Not the kind that wick away moisture, the kind that absorb moisture, the antithesis of the wick. Anyway, it's terrible. It's horrible. They just go from street to street every weekend, totally block up traffic. But when you ask this question to the people who run the New York City Street Fair, our worst institution as a municipality, they'll say, well, you know, a lot of people's jobs depend on it. There are a lot of people and what they do is they go from street fair to street fair and try to get you to buy dental equipment and like Chinese finger prisons and like frames that fall apart as soon as you uh, leave the street that the street fair is on. And the other somewhat more complex point of this argument is that, oh, yeah, these people who run the street fair, if you take that away, these people won't have jobs. No, no, no. This gets into the exact same habit of mind, the exact same piece of illogical thinking as I read today that the Empire State Development Corporation put out these figures about how much the Stanley Cup and the Rangers meant to New York City. And they said so far, and the Rangers haven't even been in New York City for the Stanley Cup. They've been in L.A. But $10 million, whatever it is, $10, $15 million has been raised by the Rangers. 
strangers being in the Stanley Cup, people go out to bars. They quote a bartender saying, yeah, I've had to increase my wait staff. They quote someone who is out of work but is stenciling Ranger designs on bar windows. All right, that's true. I'm not saying these people aren't making money, but it's the same illogic with the street fair. Displacement. I just once want to read an article where instead of going to the exact location that Rangers fans will meet and drink beer, like we know where these places are. They have a big sign outside that says, come Rangers fan. And yeah, you will find that they've done more activity, but you can't go to the thousands of other places where the Rangers fans don't go that night. So do a survey of the movie theaters. They won't be down tremendously, but every Ranger fan who's out drinking in a bar is not a Ranger fan who's at a bowling alley or the Ranger fans who are at the Philharmonic. That happens. There's an overlap. That Venn diagram exists. And that's the same argument with the people who work the street fair. Ask the businesses on the blocks that the street fair is taking up how much economic activity they generate when the street fair is in town. So I'll end with a thought from a guy who's from this huge barbecue joint in Memphis. By the way, joint, it applies to Spike Lee movies and barbecue. Very odd. He ended with this when I said, oh, so you're in town. Yeah, I've been to uh, New York once before. Where are you going to eat? I wanted some good tips from a guy who's a pit master. He goes, I'm going to mangle the accent. Where I'm from, you have a starch, you have a potato, you have a meat. Up here, I don't understand all the food. I'd be happy with a McDonald's hamburger. Now, I got none of that right, except he did say McDonald's. And that's it. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast, is slow rubbed with our blend of 13 spices and smoke slow until fork tender. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's rubbed with our secret brisket rub, then slow smoke 12 to 14 hours over hardwood, oak, and apple woods to a tender and flavorful experience. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a review when you're there. Great reviews are up. Keep them coming. Even your three-star reviews, if you mean them, if you are so inclined. I just don't, I just don't buy it. But you can search for Slate Gist in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher. You could send us an email. We're at thegist at slate.com. Or you could ask for us to send you an email. Computers don't email people. Yours did. Quote from War Games, released 31 years ago today. So our email address is slate.com slash gist email. And that's a magic email that allows you to play the show. We here at The Gist take pride in providing an audio experience that literally falls off the bone. Thank you for listening. <laughs>